Hi, Book Club members. I'm Jen Bosher. And I'm Carrie Honey. And this is Warhammer 40k Book Club, where we read from a crag. This is episode 28, and our book is The Emperor's Gift by ADB. We posted several questions on our website, wh40kbookclub.com, and we encourage participation in our discussions via Twitter, YouTube, our site, or Encrypted Box channel. Spoiler warning, if you haven't yet read this book, it was published in 2012, go, go to the site, check out the book and the questions, and come back to this episode as we'll be talking about the book in great detail from start to finish. With that, let's dive in. Not that Ourself. we would judge if you hadn't read the book, because obviously we hadn't read the book. Right. And some of us are still <laughs> reading The Horse Heresy, so, you know, we don't judge. No, it's one of those things, though, like, when I do feel kind of bad when I'm like, spoiler warning, for a book that came out 10 years ago. <laughs> okay, this isn't but Final yes. Fantasy Seven. Oh my gosh. Don't even get me started on that. Anyways, did you like this book? I did like the book. I loved it. Despite book. the fact that it was very slow and I was getting a little bit of Spear of the Emperor flashbacks. With, but at least I didn't have to wait over 200 pages for it to get good. I, I think because I remembered, it was a little slow for me as well. But I just kept thinking, I was like, ADB is the anti-Stephen King, which if you've ever read any Stephen King horror novels, you know that the man can't stick a landing to save his life. And ADB is like the expert at sticking landings. So the whole time I was like, this is a little slow. I felt the same thing about Spirit of the Emperor and I have faith. And my faith was rewarded. <laughs> and how? So what parts stood out to you? Oh, wow. Well, let's see. How about, spoiler, everything with Bjorn in it. Just every word he had to say, down to your move, Inquisitor. Um, God, especially when he was, like, finally just like, okay, that's enough. You guys made your point. Like, we're done here. Children, children, children. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I think, so for me, the, yes, the whole scenes with him, but the two things that stood out to me the most was the first was when Annika falls to her knees and she's just like, he exists. Like, this was, I mean, not the same thing as meeting like Lehman Rust or anything, but this was like meeting one of, I don't know, like one of the apostles or something, like this larger than life figure and just the fact, and I especially loved when she was like, you exist. And he's like, of course I exist. <laughs> it's just, <laughs> I, I think I said, I pictured him talking in, in Ed Asner's voice, mostly from Up. I just pictured him being like, of course I exist. What else would I be doing? <laughs> right. And of course, my favorite scene, and this is probably going to be my favorite interaction of the whole year, is when Inquisitor Casneros is like, who are you? And uh, Hyperion is like, oh my god, I'm just going to cut this to the end because it's excruciating. This guy walked with the Emperor. He was the first High King after Lehman Russ. <laughs> I did love that even the Inquisitor was like, well, it's like when Bjorn, he was like, like, are you daft, man? It's written right here. It's right here. <laughs> it's like, I got a nice name tag. Hello, my name is Indigo Montoya. You know, just, uh-huh. it's right there. Yes. And then even the Inquisitor falls on his knees. He's just like, oh my God, get up. <laughs> oh, not you too. I was <laughs> like, was it true that you walked with the Emperor? 
walked with them, fought with them, pissed with them. What else do you want? And it's like, oh my God. So I know that we've talked about this in the past, but one of the reasons that I always love the dreadnoughts is that they have run out of fucks to give. They are your, they are your like really old grandmother or grandfather who just like says shit and you're like, mm, you're old, just say what you're gonna say. <laughs> I feel like if they're all like, you know, if you were to rank them all, he's, he's definitely at a 10. He has run out of, I don't even know if he ever had any fucks to give. Like he has no chill. <laughs> I mean, he might have way back Actually, in the day. Maybe he's all the chill. I don't know. I can't figure out. He either has no chill or he has all the chill because he's just tired of all this bullshit. And I did love when they were like, in the name of the God Emperor. Oh, God, that's what started all of this. Yes. Yes. I love so that. Because the Inquisitor is so confused. He's like, but what, what does that mean? And it's like, oh, yes, you what? don't know everything that you think you do now, do you? They keep secrets even from you. Exactly. I, oh my god, I loved that whole sequence. Everything, pretty much every scene, and I think we both talked about this too, but so for that sequence, I just laughed so hard throughout it. I mean, belly laughing because it was just, oh my gosh, the stuff coming out of his mouth. I also, the scene that stood out me, to me because it was so, and in hindsight, it should not have been unexpected, but when Lord Joros gets killed. Or should I say, kilt? I I didn't see it coming. Um, but then again, neither did he, and neither did anybody else, because that's how fast he moved. Uh, I just heard Sean Connery from The Untouchables. How do you think he feels now? Better or worse? That scene was, and it, it was because it was so unexpected. Like you're reading, because like, yeah, he even had his axe blade down. And was leaning mm -hmm. on it, so he had to move insanely fast to pick it up. Not yes. only pick it up and then swirl it around before they could even react to kill him. Yeah, or see it coming. Right. Oh my god. Yeah. So wonderful. And like Hyperion had this moment of, what do I do? <laughs> like, you know, like our king is down. Um, orders captain i mean it's just this mass chaos it reminded me of a scene so one of my favorite modern westerns is a movie called open range and again spoiler alert for more than a 10 year old movie at the end there's a bunch of posturing our good guys and our bad guys they line up and the main the guy who's been touted as the big bad kind of mouths off and the main character just shoots him in the face and there's this solid two seconds of everyone going, what just happened? And then the action begins. And it's just a brilliant scene because you don't see that very often. So when I read this, I had the same thought where I was like, he just pulled an open range. Because there was that where everyone was like, what, what just happened? Kind of, you know, not unlike the celestial lion losing his head in the middle of nowhere. Whereas the reader was like, literally, wait, what just happened? Nothing is quite like that. I don't, this shocked me and I was so, whoa. But not like that, where we had to both go back and reread it and be like, oh God. Because there was like that no was tension. That was horrific. Well, because well, that, that, in that scene, there was no tension going on. There was no right. blades out. There was no, there was, everyone was hugging and like 
we're going to make this good. And then suddenly his head falls to his chest. And I was like, what, is he resting? And then mass chaos breaks loose. And Right. Well, and in this one, I'm, I'm not going to lie. I was very sad when the celestial lion died. But Jaros died, I was kind of like, bye, Felicia. Uh, yeah, when he was originally talking, like, early on, and he was um, talking about the political moves, but I was like, well, now that I'm doing this, whatever Grandmaster, he, you know, he lost his bid now for Supreme Grandmaster. And even Hyperion's is kind of, like, is this up for debate right now? He's like, oh, well, heaven forbid anything happened to the Supreme Grandmaster. But now, if something right. does, I can put my name in. It's like, okay, you're, you're too ambitious for this role of, like, the Grey Knights are not supposed to be like this in many ways. I kind of liked it, though, because I think it was kind of a subtle reminder that even though the, the Adeptus Astartes have had all of this humanity and all of the, uh, the base parts of humanity rubbed away, they're still people. There are arrogant assholes. There are social climbers. There are, you know, like, there are some core parts of a human identity that they don't really rub away. Mm -hmm. So on one hand, I did not like him as a character, obviously, because yeah, when he died, I was like, mm. but on the other hand, I, I did kind of like that when I was, because at first I had the same reaction where I was like, well, that's callous. All right. You guys can be dicks too. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, we saw that with Hyperion early on, you know, he was just so me. arrogant uh, with his, with um, his powers Let's talk about that a little. Did you like Hyperion as a protagonist? Man, at first, no. Because mm -hmm. he was like, look at me, I'm so powerful, I can do everything, you know, and he, maybe I agreed with some of the things that he was saying or doing, but they were going against orders. And things, and, Gal, and Galeo wasn't telling him these not to do things to punish him it was is either because he needed to learn or his respect like when he sees the pariah that's in the gray that used to be a gray knight and he's just like what yes. are you and he's like respect like we don't do this now um just you know kind that of like scene rubs me i think the wrongest with him so with that what are you? And yeah, because it's... Galio's like, we show respect, and he does it again. Right. What are you? Excuse you. It, you know, it's, it's like, you know, a, a five-year-old kid. You can't control right. what they're going to say. And it's like, when they see someone in a wheelchair and see them in the board, they'll just go up to and be like, what's wrong with you? You know? Yes. And they don't mean anything mean by it. It's just an mm -mm. honest question. But with Hyperion, right. he's not a five-year-old child. He is not a five-year-old child. It's like, he can know respect at his at his age and so there was a lot of like he was a child you know what yes and we'll talk about this here in a second but he really reminded me of a rebellious teenager where yes. mm -hmm. a lot of his actions it was almost as if he never got out of that phase like he developed to be a 15 year old child and then it, it was just kind of he just kind of stuck there mentally and it's it's strange to me because he did have that cockiness of well i know best and i can do it so i will do it and he really rubbed me the wrong way from start to finish um 
And it wasn't like, and I know that we talked about this with Spear of the Emperor, it's behind me, which is why I'm pointing, um, where we didn't really like Amadeus, but Amadeus was more of like that pinnacle of duty first. It, it is all duty, right? And this guy was almost the exact opposite of that, where, yeah, duty's important, but I can also do a thing, so I'm going to do the thing. Right. I actually really liked after Sothis's death, when Dunmendian tells him, I would have let you die. And mm -hmm. Gallio is even like, mm hmm And Malkadil comes around and says, yeah, I would have let you die too. Oh, because he broke ranks. I mean, he yeah. did what he wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And they were even telling him when he was spinning away, he's like, I'm going to warp jump back. And they're like, don't. You know, the demon... They will come, come right at you. He didn't trust that maybe they could have gone to find him and he's spinning out. No, he has to right. handle everything on his own. Right. Very much so. And that, I don't know. I, I felt that that was kind of, but again, looking at Joros, these people are people and you're going to have these cocky bastards, right? Like, right. I would have thought that that would have been beaten out of them apparently not apparently that's just kind of that core part of him right mean that I which like which didn't but he grew up after galeo died I mean, it was just him very and, much so i mean him and mal were one of like the handful of survivors from mm -hmm. fighting angron that's when like he that was like that was his rite of passage he was you know, it's kind of like the story of, you know, the spoiled brat and then his parents get killed and now he has to grow up all of a sudden. That's kind of what it was like with Hyperion. It was. And I will say I did like that because I feel like the book is almost divided into two halves. There's the before and there's the after. Oh, and, absolutely. Because it's the aftermath I, of after Angron. Right. Right. Which would make sense, right? After you face Angron. It's fucking Angron. Like... And he lost so many of his brothers. And I loved when he described the sense of loss, mm -hmm. the sense of emptiness. And which broke my heart, too, because I can't even imagine it. And just the fact that you do see this. And I, the other thing that I like, too, is that nobody really comments on it. He just is. He's just a different person now. And he does grow up a little bit. And I liked that. Yeah, I I think that it, was a redemption. For it him. would have cheapened it, I think. Like if Annika had been like, you know, Hyperion, you've grown up. Well, okay, thanks. Because by the way, you have not. <laughs> we'll talk about her in a minute. Let me ask you this. Did his identity surprise you? Okay, you know, and I went back and forth on this question because unfortunately, I don't even remember how... I stumbled upon this, but on some research, sometime I stumbled upon the fact that Zael from Ravener became a Hyperion of the Grey Knights. Mm -hmm. Because I, and I was still upon that. I remember reading it in that little article, like over and over again, and going, first of all, who cared about Zael in the first place? Um, second, it's like, why? Why, why do we have to do this? And honestly, the answer is, it still doesn't matter. Um, now, so I knew who he was going into it. Right. It took me a minute to remember, but when I saw Hyperion and when he said he was 
about 15 years old, I was like, wait a second, this is sounding familiar. And he talked about the flashbacks with the Black Throne. I was like, I think this is. And I looked it up. I'm like, yep, that it definitely is him. Um, so in the way, I kind of feel like I got robbed, you know, of this whole, oh. like, oh, my God, it's that guy. But I think I would have had the same reaction that I did when I first stumbled upon it. Just like, why? Why does it matter? Who cares? Because in the end, it didn't matter who he was. And if if you right. if anyone has read Ravener, the Hyperion is not Zale, right? At at all. And if Hyperion could remember how he was back then, he'd probably be very ashamed of of everything. Um, like kind of it, it, but there's little things because I read Ravener that kind of was like oh yeah because he talked about he's like he remembers like a song his grandmother used to sing well you know if you read Ravener you remember that his grandmother was found he had no idea how long she had been dead because he was a drug addict and was just you know gone all the time he doesn't remember he doesn't even remember how his sister really died did he push her was she pushed did she fall none of it mattered because he just wanted right. his next look and it's the same thing with this. None of it mattered. Like how how, I think, how he was back then. I think that's the part that I get hung up on. And I am biased going into this. I I have a lot of very strong opinions about Ravener in general. And I really did not like the whole Zale argument. The whole Zale arc. I didn't like him. It, he felt like an Atta kid. It did. It felt... Like the first book, he had somewhat of a purpose. Right. Um, after that, I feel that's why they put him in a coma because Dan Abnett had no idea what to do with him after that. Right. And I have a lot of strong opinions on this subject. So I never liked that character. I'll just say that. So when I found out that it was Zale, I was kind of like, like a drug oh. addict. There's a whole like article, drunken article worth of my very strong opinion on this matter. It has to do with the blunter. I was about to him. say, you don't like a drug addict who can somehow take over the mind of a blunter? I have strong opinions. <laughs> so <laughs> if you've listened to this podcast before, that should come down to no surprise. Um, so I didn't like the character. And I think the big thing that I had was that it didn't seem very important. And I actually didn't really understand, I didn't understand why it mattered to him. When all of a sudden he was like, I need to know who I am. And she tells him and he's like, oh, okay. Oh yeah, Ravener's a big deal. Okay. And then he goes. And I guess maybe because he, because he did say that he thought he was going to die on Armageddon. Mm -hmm. well, I, just, I think it's also I one it of those. it didn't matter. It doesn't, it didn't matter, but it might have also just been like, well, but she knows. So what's the harm in just asking right well and one of the things that i liked about it is it was kind of wink wink nudge nudge sort of thing so as i'm sure you know gideon ravner wrote the book the spheres of longing well in almost every abnet book someone at some point will mention having read the spheres of longing and the armor of contempt and so and that how and, and graham mcneil i can't remember which book it is but somebody mentions having read the spheres of longing and I was like, I, right? It's like, it's these little like things that I mm -hmm. like about the Warhammer 40k universe. So I liked it on that level of like this. Remember that guy? 
That to me is fun. But ultimately I was kind of like, oh, it, I don't know if it was supposed to have a gravity to it. But we got there and I, oh, okay. And okay. my husband, because I also knew about that from also from research, but my husband did it. And again, we're in the quarantine when I'm reading books aloud. Um, when I got there, he was like, huh. Yeah. So. Oh, okay. So. Wow. All right. And he didn't know. Yeah. And when I got there, that was his only reaction. So he was like, huh. So I mean, he room. It makes me wonder a couple of things. Like, first of all, did it ever really matter that Zale became something? Would we ever have cared or ever have wondered? Because honestly, the way that the Ravenor trilogy ended, everything kind of just suddenly disappeared stage right. I mean, it was just right. gone. Um, I can't say, because I am one of those weird people who a lot of times at the end of a book, I close the page and I think to myself, that was wonderful. I don't give a shit what happens now. Like... I am one of those people and being a nerd in the nineties, this is particularly egregious. I never liked the Timothy Zahn trilogy because when the credits rolled at return of the Jedi, I didn't give a shit what happened to any of these people. And so when I got to the end of Ravenor, it was actually the same with Eisenhorn too. When I closed that cover, I was like, what a nice story. I don't care about any of these people anymore. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't need to know what happens next. I can either fill it in with my mind and write all kinds of fanfic up here. Ask me about my Octavia and Septimus fanfic that's encased in my mind. Um, but Ravener was the same way when I got, and I think it was because I didn't like the Ravener series that when I got to the end of it, I was like, I'm good. I almost didn't finish the series. I got to the end of the first book and I was just so... Anyway, we could probably do a whole podcast on the Ravener trilogy and our feelings. That sounds like an idea for the Patreon it podcast. Certain, it certainly does. But so, but yeah, I but guess. So I, I just, I'm just curious, like, why? Is this something that they decided or was this just ADB just going, I think I want to do this with one of Dan Abnett's characters. And if that's the case, then that's totally, again, oh, yeah. I do, I do appreciate a good sort of reference. Mm -hmm. I'm totally good with it. So, but the scene, I, I guess, yeah, I just didn't understand if it was supposed to have more gravity, which which might explain uh, Dan Abnett's uh, quote on the cover of the book. I, You know what? If you if you have the copy, Dan Abnett ain't wrong. No. He, so, he, says, he says ADB is heretically good. ADB is heretically good. Emphasis on the heretic. We love you. Um, so that bridges over because in the scene, it's very interesting because when he's learning this about him and he's kind of like, hmm, Annika has a very interesting reaction to it too. She's very like, did you get what you came for? She seems very blase about it. Um, At the same time though, she kind of wanted his reaction about being with Ravener. She's like, you're with Ravener when all that was going down. He's like, huh. Yeah, okay. So on one hand, I didn't really care that much, but I understood why she cared. Oh, yeah, because undoubtedly, I mean, even though he was in Xenos and she's in Malleus, stories, I'm sure everybody has heard about Eisenhorn and Ravener and everything. Well, but it would be like if, I guess it would be as if all of a sudden you were talking with someone and they were like, um, I'm 
trying to think of a good example of this. Like if you were talking with somebody and they were like, oh yeah, you know, my grandfather was in the task force that took down Al Capone. I'm sorry, what? Yeah. Like, you know, like, oh yeah, he knew Elliot Ness. Yeah, no big deal. Right? Like, huh. Or, you know, somebody all of a sudden mentioned like, oh yeah, I was part of the Watergate scandal. Anyways, like this famous person who did these famous things and you have a member of his retinue right here and he doesn't even know it. Like, I, part of me wondered if there was a little bit of that, not celebrity, but like this, I am, I'm near history. Like I'm near a part of history. Mm -hmm. In addition to a great night. How did you feel about Annika as, so I feel like this can divide it into two people, two things. How did you feel about her as a person? And how did you feel about her as an inquisitor? Um, I think she's a terrible inquisitor. Oh, I'm so torn on it. And that's because... and, and the reason why I say that is because her loyalty is to Fenris. I don't know what her loyalty. Maybe you're right. Maybe it is just to Fenris. Like in so many ways, she was a she was a good inquisitor, and I don't mean like a good inquisitor, like Jack, like you know, like Jack Ryan. I mean like good at being an inquisitor when you have this dying space wolf and they're like we have to get him help and she's like i'm not leaving till i find out what happens like you can't wait Ugh. like an hour like just a little bit right. longer well but the other thing too is that he pretty much told you what happened demon took over the uh navigator okay like right he's and they're like we need to scuttle the ship no we can't scuttle this we have to find everything it's like woman she was a very good inquisitor so yes it will kind of because there was that part where she was this very good inquisitor who nope i'm not leaving this ship until i know exactly what happened until we destroy it if it needs to be destroyed right, right? because and she, this is all going my way by the way and she has no problem i was a little stunned when she basically turns to gallio and is like i'm in charge here fucking fight me and when gallio's like like, you can just picture him sinking into his Terminator armor, like, because wishing and, and he could speak. <laughs> for Galio, he deserved better justice for Galio. Um, kind of, yeah. But as, but occasionally, I mean, at the end, I don't know. Does she turn out to be a good person then? Because she basically recognizes that Kisneros is totally off his rocker, totally causing chaos havoc and needs to be taken care of does that make her then the good person versus the good inquisitor like does that make her like a good a good guy here's what here's what I, i'm really curious um i don't think she would have given a rat's ass about those people if logan grimnar hadn't been we need to keep these people safe but because her current king, even though really her current king is the emperor, that's really who she's supposed to be, you know, going to. Right. Be but if that had been Marnius Calgar. That's, see, this is what I am wondering. Like, if it was another chapter, if, if it was, so if it was another chapter and Marnius Calgar, which he wouldn't, but let's, for argument's sake, say that he would and be like, you just don't kill these people. 
All right. And if Marnie is Calgar, which he wouldn't, but if he did go to war against the Inquisition, I don't think she would have been as defensive. I think she would have been right there with Lord Cisneros and been like, yeah, if we had to wipe you guys all out, okay. I, I agree, actually. And I would be very interested in what other people think of that because I got the distinct impression when Logan Grumnar was like, you will not kill these people. And she's like, yeah, of course not. I really do. And that's why I say, I think she's in her heart. She's loyal to Fenris for first and foremost. And I don't know if that just comes. So maybe, maybe had it been Marnius Calgar and she had been born on the crag hmm. or Kalf, maybe that would have been the same thing. Like maybe it's just, maybe that's part of your identity. If you grow up on a chapter's homeworld. Maybe it could be because the Fenrisians, as they say, that planet is literally a death world. It breeds hard-ass people. Mm -hmm. Like, but I also have to say, though, I haven't read a single other book about an Inquisitor that is makes such a big deal about their homeworld as this one. And that I couldn't... The, the only reason why I know where Erasmus Kral is from is just because of where he's stationed. That's just kind of how it is. I don't know where anybody else is from, and it doesn't matter. The only other time I have seen that is in, well, that's not true. So actually it's in the Imperial Guard book. So Caiaphas Kane, okay. the Caiaphas Kane novels, the planet they are from is important. And obviously in the Gaunt's Ghosts books, Tanith, Belladon, Bergast, those are important. Right. But those are very human things. And obviously, if you're a space marine, your planet is important because you're like a space marine shit. I was a little surprised because the Inquisitors are supposed to kind of divorce themselves from that. Right. That right. it doesn't matter where you came from before. You now serve the throne. Right. And I would. It's interesting you mention Erasmus Crowell, because as I was reading the book, I would love, love to have Annika and Crowl have lunch together because I would love to get his measure of her and vice versa because one thing I, I noticed with, with Annika is that it really came across to me that she was not an inquisitor first she was a Fenrisian, Fenrisian first yes. and that's a problem with an inquisitor it's a huge problem with an inquisitor now you could probably argue that in her line of work that's probably coming to conflict this is probably the only time it's coming to conflict this is probably literally the first and only time that that's been a problem for her. Possibly, except that because of her loyal, because of that first loyalty to, to Fenris, mm -hmm. that's why she went out after that beacon. She wasn't ordered to. She, she discovered it right. and she was determined to go out there because only she could do it because she's from Fenris. Right. There... Fenris, and again, I don't know. I don't know if this is be just because of it's an Inquisitor's homeworld, or it's uh, the first founding chapter's homeworld. Maybe, maybe there are Inquisitors from a crag and Calf, and um, oh, I'm sure that they are. I'm I sure just, there are. I just, I think it was so anathema to what we've seen before. And maybe that's just also Fenris in general, because you got to think it about really it. Really could be an, an Inquisitor from a crag. They're going to do their duty, and that's to the God Emperor yes. and that's to their Ordo and to their Lord and the Ordo and, 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 and 
And if they ever got up against Marnius Calgar, they would go against Marnius Calgar because McCragian's going to do their duty because that's just that subsect of people. But that Finland, is that's true. And the Fenrisians do breed wolves, not dogs. And not right. And not only that, but they don't follow the um, codex. Nope. They don't have just one thousand members. Nope. You know, they've, well, and they've kind of always kind of gone off the leash. It's been right. very well known. Let me ask you this question. So looking at Ravener, looking at Eisenhorn, looking at um, Crowell's books, the, uh, the Vaults of Terra series, they give a lot of lip service to their retinues. And you really get to learn their retinues. I... I found it very odd that she was in a relationship with Cloven. Clovon. Um, I found that weird. Especially with the giant Aquila tattooed across his face. It was like, that's not a fashion statement. I found that very strange. But other than that, I really didn't care about a single person in her retinue. I kind of liked Darford. And that was just because <laughs> he cracked jokes. Right. There was that. I actually liked uh, Merrick, the guy with the cyber mastiff. Yeah. But other than that, like, they would show up and I was like, oh, right, you people. Let's, I, I wasn't just, really uninvested in them. Well, one of my favorite scenes is when Darford, you know, touches Hyperion's armor. And, Hi and then, you know, Hyperion actually cracks a joke. And he's just like, oh, yes. my God, crack a joke. And he pats his armor again. And then Hyperion's like, well, a pinch there. It's a little throbbing here. And he's just like... Dang it, headache. He's like, I know you did this. I'm fine with it, but I know you did it. Right. <laughs> Although, right. actually, I would have to say probably my favorite character of the whole bunch was the the captain of the ship. Oh, my gosh. With his I foppish hat. I loved him. I and he was such him. a badass. Oh, my God. He was like this badass old world pirate and not like the ridiculous Johnny Depp bullshit right. like this really just great pirate in living out his dreams piloting a Grey Knight's vessel and he was a, you're right he was a total badass he was calm and he was cool but he also did have this very strong personality to him that I thought was amazing in terms of minor characters well, especially when, like, they're almost about to die because that Space Wolf ship just materializes out of the warp, cutting through that other flagship. He decides, like, I guess we're crash diving. And oh, my gosh. Of course, that whole two pages, I was on the edge of my seat. It's like, because it kind of reminded me a lot of Flight of the Eisenstein, just, like, on the edge of my seat, like, how they're going to get through this. And then he looks, he looks back and sees how the other ship, because it didn't get away fast enough, it's destroyed. He's just like... It's like, well, they didn't have the balls to crash dive. <laughs> Just while everybody is falling forward, people are dying. He's about falling out of his captain's throne. But he's holding on while leaning forward and still can make a sarcastic comment. And then when they level back out, they get back up to space. What's the first thing he does? He adjusts his hat. Yes. He, in terms of minor badass characters, oh God, totally. So, but it was interesting, and this is a good segue, because I just sat there through most of the book, all of his interactions, I was like, how in the hell 
did you end up with the gray knights like he has all this personality like again in these little small bits he is a presence he has wonderful personality and he's with the gray knights you have to tell him to be nice to the space docs like no jokes this time (laughs) right so what stood out most to you about the gray knights in this book especially because i feel like this is one of the first books at least that i've read where i felt as though at the end of the book i understood exactly how the gray knights operate the way they talk to each other the way the way they look at the imperium which is somewhat interesting um well this wasn't my first look really because i had read david annandale's gray knights book which actually gave me really that's that was like my first really big look into them and how they work with the Ordo Malleus and how, how they operate, um, how the prognosticators operate. Um, it did not go into the pariahs, so I'm very interested in how that happens, um, you know, doing research you know, l- later on with other Grey Knights mm-hmm. novels. Um, but do I feel like I understood them more? No, no. Mm-hmm. Um, just because, like, again, because Sons of Titan, I mean, it was one of those tight-knit five-man groups. Mm-hmm. It was kind of the same uh, same hierarchy, plus they had, a, you know, they had a, uh, Ordo Malleus. She didn't have a retinue with her, not really. She, they mostly stayed stayed on the ship, and, every, and when they were boarding this other Ordo's ship, uh, then they kind of were fighting against each other's retinues, but... Um, the big thing with that one, though, it delved really much more into the purpose of the prognosticator. Mm-hmm. So it was very, so it was very interesting to see. So I almost want to kind of go back and kind of read that, like the pieces of it again. When it talks about the prognosticator, because it is the prognosticator, is that still uh, Hyperion, mm-hmm. or is it prognosticators? I'm just, I just want to go back and see. I said because. Basically, the point, the thing about Sons of Titan is that the prognosticator said some major de- demonic warp event was going to happen on a certain planet. They get there, there's orcs invading. Of course, the people are like, are you here to save us? He's like, oh, no, sorry. <laughs> We're here looking for something else. And there happens to be another member of the, uh, the Ordo Xenos who is there. They know that she's a Xanthite. They're kind of watching her. They're convinced that she's doing something, and it's actually because they're just convinced she's doing something that they inadvertently open the warp event, bring up right, and bring up Kugoth. So the the big thing was what they said in the prognosticator. They said, "But we brought it about. So what was the prognosticator really seeing? Like, are we always doing a self fulfilling thing with the prognosticators, or would this right. not happen if we were not there?" And that's kind of what it analyzes, which kind of makes which is why I'm really curious, like, who's the prognosticator at the time for, for that. But you know, this was obviously very different. Like, Angron is fucking there. Uh, yeah. And doing Angron things. So I think the thing that surprised me the most was that, and this is always just one of those things where I'm always like, huh, when they mention that it's Angron, they have... Hyperion has this little internal dialogue where he's like, God, 
is that really one of the emperor's sons? I mean, how do we know this isn't just some legend? Because we don't even know for sure, right? Like he talks well, when about- they talk about how it's one of the conclave Diabolus, and because I wrote this down, and Piperian says, "But there's how can it be? There's fewer than ten of them." I'm like that's right, there are fewer than ten of <laughs> you them. You don't say. <laughs> yes, and yes, the fact that they have them. That's another thing. The fact that they have them labeled as such, you would almost expect that they would have it labeled as, oh shit, that's one of the traitor primarchs. Or, you know, that's one of the, you know, the um, the arc demons. Like there's all these different titles you could have given them. I found it interesting that when they said the Conclave Diabolus, I was like, oh, that just made it sound like, I don't know. It made, and I'm sure to them it was like, capital letters with the trademark symbol at the end, but it made it sound like just any big demon. Like Kugoth. Right. Yeah, right? I, I think they were I think they were almost were trying to make it seem that way, and I think that was because, again, right. they're trying to hide like the Soviet Union here. They're trying to hide the misinformation. They're trying to, you know, control the message. They can't let yes. the people know that this is a fallen Primarch. Right. And but I just found it very interesting. These guys are demon hunters. That's kind of within their idiom. And they don't even know for sure. And, I don't know if it's no, they don't now, know or they just well hard to believe, you know, because I, I could see it totally right. being the latter with it, you know, being hard to believe. Because also, you know, the Primarchs are such a myth. Right. At, at There's point. that. Well, I think. So that I, I couldn't tell what that was go, was going on there because before they see Angron, they're kind of like, oh, it's concave Diabolus. And then, oh, is it really? Like, we don't even know. what the, So much as legend and myth. Is this really a Primarch? And then later on in the book, they're like, oh, yeah, of course that was Angron. Of course it was. So I found that to be kind of strange. But there were actually a few things throughout here where they were like, yeah, we don't really know about this that much. And it was like, huh. If anyone would have known about this, I thought it would have been you guys. Well, you know, but so, we, we saw that also in um, the first Erasmus Kral book when he sees the, the, the uh, golden image. Yes. And he's just like, well, who are these nine others? Why are there 20 guys up on yeah. here? Fucking weird. Right. Yes. And I'll, yes, but I guess I pictured they're so secret. They're so secretive. I was. They probably Very have more secrets in the fallen than fallen angels than the dark angels do. She little uh, you know Freudian slip there. Uh, yes, I I think they do, and I think even they're victim to it. So I found that kind of interesting. I did also like that they praised the sigilite. I yes, I thought that was kind of fun. I was like, hey, like well, yeah, Malkador approves. <laughs> Malkador does approve. So speaking of Angron and Armageddon. What what was your so what did you think about the war for Armageddon? Did you have a favorite part of it? Did you want to see more of it? Less of it? Well I wasn't expecting to see more because I know there's like a whole set of books dedicated just to the war for Armageddon. Right, right. Um, I have read they're good. Yeah, I mean I have the the whole omnibus that has has all of them. So I'll get to that. Hell's with, Reach is amazing. I'll get to that, you know, with everything else I haven't read. So any day now, any day now. Um, try the favorite part. Um, 
I, for some of it, though, I almost felt a little lost. And there was so much going on at yes. once. It was kind of hard to tell. Like, I thought I understood their orders. But when they landed, then I didn't understand exactly what was going on. And I think it's just because there's so much chaos. That and Hyperion, I think... Hyperion's read Faulkner, damn it. Because I feel like he was tapping in so many different um, consciousness all around him. It's almost kind of feeding in. It was like reading the beginning of The Sound and the Fury all over again. You just don't know which stream of consciousness he's kind of tapping into. I love that book. God, I hate that book. Um, yeah, sorry. hate it. Um, Faulkner's not for everyone. No, well, cl- clearly not. There were, yeah. <laughs> to quote Animal House, I don't think Mrs. Faulkner liked him very much either. Um, yeah. So, I did like that. I did. I And I think part of that was intentional because it was <laughs> chaotic. But it was, there was so much going on. And Hyperion, they've already established, is a character who cannot focus. Right. So the fact, and I actually liked that part of it because as soon as he drops down and there's all these people and all this stuff going on, it made sense to me that he was like, squirrel, 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 squirrel. Even though one of the squirrels was Mal, my boy Mal. If they would have left Mal behind, I would have thrown this book in the trash. Yeah, I'm so glad Mal survived through the book. He's my favorite character. He wasn't my favorite, He's... but man, he was way up there. Oh God, I I just have a soft spot for the either tech the um, tech marines or the soon to be tech marines, I guess. But I just loved Mal, so. But yeah, he was this very, just could not focus on anything. And it was, it was very chaotic. But mostly, I think my biggest takeaway from the War of Armageddon was that Angron is terrifying. Yes. However, I don't think he's more terrifying than Karn. Um, oh gosh. I don't know. Because... Because reading this scene with him and then remembering Shroud of Night, when they see Karn coming up, swiveling his axes, that to me was 10 times more terrifying than dealing with Angron. Well, I wonder if it was because of the reactions, right? Because Karn shows up and the Alpha Legion space marines are like, no, fuck that. (laughs) They're not scared per se because they know no fear, but they're like, "Mm mm-mm. No, I don't want any part of that. Whereas with Angron, the Grey Knights, are re- they're resigned, right? That this thing is terrifying, but by God, we're going to kill this thing. Or so I thought that was Right, literally. And so I don't know if maybe it was the reaction. The fact maybe. that you have these guys who they're facing a demon Primarch and they're just like, same shit, different day. Whereas with the card, they're all like, mm-mm, mm-mm, mm-mm. <laughs> They hard noped. I just imagined it that scene like in the it's one of my favorite gifts of all times because if you play Dark Souls, you know the exact scene when the guy's running down the hall and there's that thing with all the bones and he turns around, nope. Yeah. Pretty much with Karn. So I found Angron to be a little more terrifying, but again, I think it's also I also had sadness because I've read Betrayer. I just, every time I see Angron now as the demon Primarch, I just, I get a little feels. 
Although, my first question to him was, could somebody ask where Lotara is? Is she the machine spirit for one of their ships now? Please, inquiring minds want to know. That was, that was my big thing there. I did understand why the wolves called for help, though. Well, yes. <laughs> so... That might be a good reason to uh, for Logan Grimnar to be like, oh, by the way, there is a secret sect of uh, Adeptus Astartes who do nothing but this. <laughs> I actually love the idea that Logan Grimnar showed up, saw Angron, and was like, this is not even our business. <laughs> like, there's a whole order of dudes who can deal with this. <laughs> so the wolves are not a chapter known for their measured reactions. <laughs> they... <laughs> God, I, everything within this book, every single interaction within the wolves, the, with the wolves, I was like, yeah, yeah, that seems about right. Yeah. That seems about right for the wolves. Uh, especially when Logan Grimnar is like, yeah, these guys got no manners. It was like, um, do you understand them better as a chapter? Because I know that you're not a big wolf fan. Yeah, actually, this is the book that made me like the space wolves. Hey! Welcome. So I was starting to kind of like them after Ashes of Prospero. Mm -hmm. But no, this one like really, really sealed it for me. And, you know, part, part of it's Slogan Grimnar. Uh, I liked Brand Rothrode. badass. As well. Um, of course, Bjorn. I mean, who doesn't like Bjorn? But I even really liked the wolf that was on that wreck. The ship that's like limping along to get repairs. And he's still just talking smack to Lord Kisneros. It's like, you know, we got a whole chapter here. And he's like, and? <laughs> like, is there anybody we can talk to? You know, so kind of, you know, you think of Monty Python. Is there anyone up there? Else up there we can talk to? <laughs> <laughs> he's like, yeah, g give me four hours. <laughs> oh, okay. So reading the book, as soon as they were like, give us four hours, I was like, oh, no, they're not. See, I had no idea. Who they were because going to get. what takes about four hours to wake up? Well, I don't, I didn't know this. I actually thought they were stalling for time for Logan to get back. Well, and the funny thing is, to me, is because as soon as they were like, give us four hours, my husband and I both were like, oh, no, they didn't. Of course they're going to. Because when the Inquisition comes knocking at your door, you get the fell hand up here. <laughs> I love the idea. And I feel so bad for him, too, because I imagine him just being like, oh, God, is it the Inquisition again? I. Oh, God. OK, so. Were they right? You know, the thing is, um, so the only one who was right in this was Bjorn. When he said uh, he said at the end, he's like, you know, you guys made a stand and you were right. You guys were right. But how you've come about this is wrong. Um. Now, I totally understand the wolves' request. Right. At the same time, I think it was foolish for them to think that the soldiers who saw what happened could leave. That I understand. Oh, as much as it kills me, I think it sucks and I hate their reasoning for it. I understand the soldiers. What got me was the population who saw none of it. And they sterilize them. Yep. And then put them in work camps. I really go back and forth. So if you read like the Caiaphas Cain books or the Gaunt's Ghost books, 
the Imperial Guard, life is hard. Life expectancy is short, unless you're a named character. Um, it is not easy. These people, I mean, the, the, the Imperium subscribes to the Russian school of war, which is just throw bodies at it. So on one hand, I'm like, yeah, these people saw demons, like things that are not supposed to exist. But on the other hand, with a lot of the guardsmen, I was like, these guys are probably going to be dead inside of a year because Imperial Guard life, and I feel like the God's Ghost book, well, and the, the Kane books also demonstrate this so well, is that you go to one battlefield and you face unspeakable horrors, then you get on your ship, you go somewhere, and a few months later, you are in a battlefield facing unspeakable horrors. And that's just the guard life. It's not like they're going to go home, be with their families for a few years, and then go back out when war calls. Mm -mm. Oh, no. These guys are just going right back into the meat grinder. And so part of me was like, guys, this problem is probably going to fix itself. Well, it's not only that, but I was also, and also, you know, and I think I was thinking about it. It's like, you know, they're going to go home and they're going to talk tall tales about the Adeptus Astartes fighting yes. these demons. How many people are really going to buy into this and believe it? And do they even know who the Grey Knights are? No. All they'll know is that they saw some Adeptus Astartes. Yes, they were in silver armor. Well, who isn't? There's so many chapters out there. They don't know who it was. You're not going to be able to pinpoint that down. Well, and most of them, unless you live very close to the Space Marines, you probably couldn't even name all of the chapters off the top of your head or like the main the first founding chapters you probably don't know them and yeah there's a ton of chapters so oh we saw these guys in silver Ooh, oh they all were silver right yes. and you know you telling tales about how they took down this great demon you know and saved us all well they sure can't know damn. about the demon well but but they saved everybody you know kind of like that one meme that you have that you know the the people coming out and being like, oh, yeah, you saved us from the demons. Is everything going to be okay? Yes, but actually no. Because now yes, we, but no. But because now we have to kill you all for reasons because you happen to see a demon. Which, you know, just kind of goes back to my whole theory. It's like I think the Inquisition is doing the world wrong and trying to cover all this up. Because first of all, a lot of people, there's going to be tall tales. Like, they... They already, most people, we've discussed this many times, don't believe that the Adeptus Astartes are real. That, right. That there's some great myth. The Emperor's myth. angels are a myth. They're a parable. Like, you know, the Emperor is on the Golden Throne. Maybe this is what we believe. You know, we kind of moved on. There's just so many planets and people. Right. And they're so afraid of these cults taking in. Well, guess what, folks? The cults t take in no matter what because the right. because the demons are always looking for those with weakness. And you right. know, and So that's one of those things too where they're like, oh, we can't have cults popping up. I mean, like if it's not them. And I, I understand that, you know, if you see a roach, even though there's 50 behind the wall, you're still going to kill that one that you see. Right. Right. But I mean, at some point, and I think the thing that killed me was when they killed the listening stations that just happened to note that the ship was going past because you could have scuttled that ship and the listening station would have been like, wait, what ship? Mm -hmm. Oh, that one? I probably got lost in the warp. It's like, again, because the Imperium is so large. Right. You're talking about like, it, it's trying to pick out a single grain of sand. Right. 
this one this one piece of rice like if you're pouring a five pound bag of rice oh that one piece looks black it'll sort itself out you know, and now what's been created in the end by you being like, well, we have to go kill billions of people now. We have to go exterminate us a whole bunch of planets because this one person might say something to someone. That's going too far beyond. Way too that, far. I mean, that. And now what you also have, what you're not realizing, is that you've made things worse. And not just exterminating a planet. It's that now these people who actually did get away because the wolves helped them are going to go home and be like, the wolves had to escort us home because the Inquisition was going to kill us for some reason. Well, I don't think the wolves told them that. I think they probably obfuscated that, but it was probably like, oh, there's something hunting us. We got to go. And they were they probably know like, that oh, there yeah. were ships out there getting shot. Because, Maybe. Yeah, I think they do because they were trying to, you know, get them one by one. And then, and then right. Grimnar was like, oh, nope, let's wrap it up. You're all going at once because they can't get you all. I liked how cunning, so that was another thing, and this is a common refrain with the wolves, and they even say that later when he kind of touches Logan Grimnar's mind, and he's like, oh, this guy's not an idiot. This is not some savage beast. This guy is very smart. But I liked how cunning they were when they realized that, oh, they've been just moving people onto different ships. We've been hunting, hunting empty, empty vessels a lot of the times because they have moved people and they've done like they've dropped like 20 or 30 people here. Mm -hmm. Right. Which, but so let's, let's bridge because I think this is going to give us a good conversation to wrap up here. First off, how did you feel about Kisneros? Oh, he's an asshole inquisitor. I mean, it's just, I don't, I don't know what else you want from me. I mean, he just, he, uh, I couldn't tell who was the bigger jerk, him or Doris, but I think they're around the same. And I think, right. you know, when Hyperion's asking Joros, like, well, did you believe that, that they were, that they should have, did you believe his story about treachery? And he's like, well, of course not. But, you know, I gotta, like, but then after yeah. what Kisnero said, was any of that even true? Did Joros just lie? Did Joros lie to, um... Hyperion or did Kisneros lie to Hyperion? I mean, who knows? Who knows? Because, yeah, Joros was kind of like, oh, yeah, Kisneros is kind of calling the shots and, you know, I'm good with it. So this is whatever. And this was a guy who opened fire on ships because, ah, they could betray us because I've heard stories. But then later he goes back and is like, well, that was all Joros telling me these things. And there's something, and I want to get your opinion on this because I don't think this was... It wasn't adequately closed out for me. He's young. Remember, they even say they're like, he's very young. Like, he seems young even for having had rejuvenate because mm -hmm. he has all these youthful qualities. And Annika says, she's like, this guy has no paper trail. There's nothing. I, can, I can't find anything about him. And she's like, you know, even that's weird, even by Inquisition standards. And then at the end, she kind of says, she's like, look, I know that people are gunning for your job. That's just the Inquisition. Right, right. So they kind of set up this mystery about who is this guy really other than a super powerful psyker? Well, as I a felt, super powerful psyker, couldn't he wipe his own paper trail? I mean, I guess, but that seems Or very... as a super powerful psyker, is that how he might have? got these promotions so quickly maybe right that's you know, entirely possible i guess i just felt like i wanted to i kind of like by that point i was like who is this guy so like, who can call an entire 
Adeptus Astartes chapter up on the phone. So, like, I even looked up in the Ravener books because I remember there was a Lord Inquisitor in there who was very big and actually had a big part in deciding what was going to happen to Ravener at the very end. And I looked up to see if that was the same person, and it's not. I didn't think right. it would be because of Z Z Ordo Xenos versus Malleus, mm -hmm. but I still wanted to check because I was just, because I, I am kind of curious who this guy is, where he came from. Right. Because I'm having a hard time believing that this is his first book. And if it is, then maybe he really is that young and there's like a little more, there's other shady stuff kind of going on. Mm -hmm. One thing I will say about him is that he kind of almost got me to his side when he brought Hyperion in there. And he was almost like pleading with Hyperion. He's like, it's gotten out of control. I need to get this back under control. I need your help to do so. And Hyperion's like, ow, like what, what? What do you want me to do? So yeah, what the fuck do you want me to do? Yeah, he's like, you gotta help me convince them that they're gonna have to go on this crusade for penitence. And it's like, no, you're gonna, like, you're gonna have to bend. And there's the thing, is that the Inquisition, and he begged, you know, Bjorn's like, just a, you know, hundred-year crusade. And he's like, well, why should we have to do that when you guys were wrong, too? And I felt, so this is his only book, by the way. This is an ADB character from here. Um, so I, I read that scene and my first reaction was this is a metaphor for the inquisition you have a guy a guy this guy right here he walked alongside a primark he walked alongside the all-father he walked on the fields of terra right he was at major battles during the horus heresy and at first, the guy is like, oh, my gosh. But then the second words out of his mouth are, yeah, you guys just need to do this, this crusade to make the Inquisition feel better. It's like you have been presented, not necessarily with divinity, but one of the, at the time, because this is like, this is, uh, what, 600-something years before Robbie G wakes up. You have been presented with the closest thing to divinity that you're ever going to come to. Mm -hmm. And your first reaction is yeah but let's talk about what we want right because and nowhere and that's the other thing is is that you know um he he at one point he says you know we're both come to compromise he never offered a compromise never well because it's the inquisition i think like, the only compromise compromise he, is you compromise with us we don't compromise i think you. like the only compromise he could think of is like well, well we won't exterminatus your planet or um, I guess we can't contain it and we're going to have to let it go. That's that's our concession that you've when, won, you've won he, this little area. When he suggested declaring them excommunicatus and exterminatusing Fenris, I like I recoiled from the book. My husband I reading did it aloud to him, he was like, what the fuck? But even Hyperion, I mean, he's just like, this is a first founding. You don't do this. Oh my God. Like just the arrogance mm -hmm. was, but again, I almost felt like it was a metaphor. And even though this is like, you know, almost a full century before, <laughs> a full century before Robbie G wakes up, I feel, or sorry, a full millennia before Robbie G wakes up, um, I feel like this should retroactively be a voicemail. Hey Rob, fun story because one of the things in here at the end Bjorn says the Inquisition will never leave us alone 
And one of the final questions from the Inquisition is, what do we know about their gene seed? Right. And I can't remember paging Skywatcher Adept. Uh, I can't remember if this is just hinted at at a codex or if there was an actual story. Because I want to say that we might have even read it. Um, there's a short story where they hint the fact that in the modern era, the space wolves are having issues getting their gene seed. And sometimes it comes to them and it's spoiled. Which if anybody could make that work, it would be the Inquisition. These people are wrathful. And all I can think of in this book, and I know ADB does not like when we say this, but she really doesn't have a good view. Maybe she doesn't hate the Inquisition or the Imperium, but I think he definitely hates the Inquisition because all I thought about was the Spear of the Emperor. I was like, the Spirits of the Emperor guys needed to read this book because then they would know one does not question the Inquisition. Oh, no, One you... does not go against the Inquisition. Which is why it's making what's going on now so delightful with Robbie G. Are you guys going to go against Reboot Gulliman? Are y'all really? Do yeah. You, th you think you're going to win that one? Oh, of course. Because it's the Inquisition and they don't want to get rid of their power. So I could absolutely. But that's like part of me was like, Rob needs to read this book. Because Rob needs to have tea with Bjorn. Can you imagine those two seeing each other? Because he would just be like, weren't you a kid? <laughs> you were like brand new. But uh, do you understand? I, I felt at the end of the book, I didn't really understand Kisneros' actions and motivations other than I think he was a kid who got in over his head and then pride prevented him from being like, okay, Dude, I got it. I got Bjorn telling me to fuck off. I'm going to fuck off. That's, ex I mean, that's really what I got out of, especially when, when he's asking Hyperion for help and he says it's gotten all out of control. He really thought, whether Doros told him to or not, mm -hmm. he really thought that by, you know, pulling rank, he could get the Space Wolves to back down. He apparently does not. You know what it reminded me of? It reminded me of a little bit is actually in the dark knight do you remember when um michael Caine is explaining he's like they turned to a man that they didn't understand and with all due respect you don't understand them him either that's all i could think of because i feel as though especially in the in the imperium and especially in the inquisition they just don't understand the wolves and they don't understand that i think they forget that the whole Adeptus Astartes Inquisition thing is a tenuous alignment and they're basically aligned because the Adeptus Astartes allow it. The wolves are not the Ultramarines. The wolves are not the Imperial Fists. The wolves are the wolves. And you have apparently grossly underestimated them. And all we need is for the wolves and the dark angels to put aside their differences for a little bit and they can go against the Inquisition. 10 out of 10, book of the year would read. Right? <laughs> well, it's, it's okay. So here's the thing. All they would have to do is because it's just an honor duel. So all they would have to do is they meet in the beginning of the book and it's like that scene in Predator. Dark angels, you son of a bitch! And they fight and they punch each other and they grab each other's fists and then they go and they take on the Inquisition. 
which should be a lot like hunting predator would totally read i want this book to happen <laughs> so badly <laughs> somebody needs to write this uh, i would read it i would buy the collector's edition this is true hey guy That's Haley, what you doing you doing anything, anything? or david annandale somebody somebody write the thing we're asking y'all to write the thing <laughs> <laughs> make the thing happen black then, library would so, be like that's not canon and i'd be like it's fine robbie g that'd be quite a voicemail for him so the dark angels and the space wolves he's like oh, what now no no they teamed up and they're going against the inquisition <laughs> rob would be like I'm going through a tunnel <laughs> like, <laughs> hmm, do i care about this let's just see what happens i'm, I'm a little busy right now <laughs> i got like mortarian to worry about so you know yeah i'm a little busy so could you call back like in a week <laughs> a week give me like seven business days a week in primark time is what like 700 years pretty much yeah pretty much she'd get back to it like in 10 years after half the inquisition was dead they'd just be like so what was that you guys cool now no i would i would love that it would be the greatest gift oh i i am i am waiting for this uh this inquisition war to to happen and and i know that this takes place i know that this takes place like you know a ways before before mm -hmm. any of this but i mean those seeds the horus heresy those seeds are sown they they are there they are and i think we've talked about that a lot that it feels as though we are gearing up toward there is very real potential for there to be another type of civil war within the imperium and i imagine that it's going to end up being the, the mouthpieces versus the foot soldiers you're going to have the military end of this versus the inquisition or the, or the ecclesiarchy or whomever and Granted, this probably doesn't get super prioritized in Rob's mailbox because you're talking about something that happened 600 years ago. But I can't imagine that he would be disinterested. No, especially when he hears that the Inquisition was threatening to exterminate us an entire first founding chapter. The chutzpah involved in there is just. What I are, mean, are you doing? If I hadn't known that this was like so long ago, I would have, and that this was written like what eight years ago or so, I would have probably been like, oh, "Shit, we're about to have a civil war going on." I can't imagine reading this when this first came oh out. Oh my god! Oh my gosh! No, I can't either. Um, I, this is you could add this to the list of books that I regret having not read when it first came out. I had the copy of it. I bought it. I'm sure I looked at it and was like, "ADB." But knowing me and my dumbass, I probably looked at it and was like, but it's not heretics. Put it away. Night Lords for life, guys. I I get it, but he can write others too. It's no, okay. He yeah, he can. You wrote Spirit of the Emperor. You like that. I didn't. I loved that book. See? The man can stick a fucking ending. Well, it's again and this is one of the things with this book too that those last so all right i texted carrie at about right after actually right as he starts talking about the months of shame and i was like oh god 
this is going to be about the Inquisition and the Space Wolves going to war. And I even looked at the book and I even said to my husband, it's like, ugh, it's like a hundred something pages left of this. And then Logan Grimnar kills Lord Juros and just right into the end. And the whole time we were like, oh, and it got to the end. And I was very sad that it was over. I was so happy my boy Mal got to be a tech marine. So I, um, I ugly cried at the end of this book. I started ugly crying at the epilogue. And then when I saw chapter 10, which I was like, well, that's just weird. But I kept going anyway. I mean, it brought about the same feelings I had when I read To Kill a Mockingbird, which I read for the first time just a few years ago. And it was, you know, I know everyone gets so shocked, but I didn't have to read it in school. Um, so when I first read it, I read it, I had strep throat and nothing else to do. So I sat and read. And so I read it like in one day. And I remember, because I compared um, uh, Prospero Burns to To Kill a Mockingbird a lot because they both started off with some random uh, storyline that didn't make any sense until the very end. And at To Kill a Mockingbird, when they got to the point where they talked about um, breaking his leg, it hit me the very beginning of the book and I started to sob. And this was kind of brought a lot of those same feelings when I saw it all come in full circle. And I just, and of course, you know, quarantines probably had something to do with this as well. We're all under like a lot of stress and pressure. But right. I mean, I just sat here and I ugly cried. Like it was. See, we had, and that was funny, not funny, like amusing to me because we had an equally strong reaction, but we were just belly laughing with Bjorn because he was just slapping him. And I think it's because we're both such Space Wolves fans. This book feels like a book for Space Wolves fans. And I can see at that. the end, I was just so happy at the end. Like I just, the whole time I was reading it, I was like, that's so nice. That's so nice. Because we joke a lot in this podcast that there are no happy endings in Warhammer 40k. And Okay, yes, billions of people are dead. A master of the Grey Knights is dead. Like, a, a bunch of shit happened in this book, you guys. But it was just such a nice ending. He got to see Mal again. Mal is now a tech marine. He got to do the thing that he wanted to do. Um, Hyperion has clearly grown up. He's now a prognosticar. They got to go and ring the bell for Sothis. It was just... It yeah. was so... Nice. It was, it just, it was beautiful. That's why. Really that's the only way I can it. describe it. It was just so beautiful. It really was, and it was. Oh fuck! It was just so nice. And uh, we. So the thing that I've said about, and it's funny because I just called him the anti-Stephen King. We were watching uh, the movie version of Doctor Sleep the other night, and there was this really nice scene in there, and I was like, you know, when Stephen King wants to be nice. He is so nice. And I was starting to think ADB is the same way because when he wants to be nice and he wants to be sweet. Yeah. I was so happy. So I guess what we're saying is that this book, this book really, really is going to be a hard act to follow for our next book. Yes. Which but is The Last Hunt by Robbie McNiven. So we're going from Space Wolves 
to another kind of brutish chapter, the White Renegade chapter. Yes. Because I don't think they follow the Codex either. No. They pretty much, well, kind of, more so than the Space Wolves do. Okay, well, everybody does more so than the Space Wolves do. Valid. They, but it, it it's the other savage, fuck you, we do what we want chapter. So I'm actually very excited about this. Mm-hmm. Also because my boy, the Nids are in here. Everybody knows that. That's like what I'm nids. not excited about is the Nids Sowie. in here. Yeah. Sowie. No, but after, you know, Apocalypse, I wanted to learn more about the White Scars. And I happened to see right. this book and I was like, we need to add this to, to our list. Jen hadn't read it either. So, hey, let's no, get some White Scars on. Since nothing's being published right now, because we're still in week eight of quarantine. Yeah, it's getting kind of scary. We're we're getting through what we have that we agree on. <laughs> right. After this, it's just going to be... Yeah, this is how we're going to both end up reading Requiem Infernal, because that book is my Everest. Yeah, I'm not reading that, so you're on your own. Well, if they don't publish anything else, you are pumpkin. No, I'm not. I got other things. Okay, oh if I God. read Requiem Infernal, you're reading Mephiston. I already agreed to read a Blood Angels book, and that is Midnight Sun by Stephanie Meyer. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Would you like to take us out, Karen? Yes. Uh, yes. We're going to talk about Twilight. Twilight reference? We're going to talk about Twilight. We're out. That is that is how you know it's time to go when they bring up Twilight. But think, you've listened to the Warhammer 40k book club episode regarding the Emperor's Gift by our man ADB Aaron Dinsky Bowden. Be sure to join us for our next book, The Last Hunt by Robbie McNiven. We are an unofficial book club and not affiliated with the Black Library or any of its affiliates. You can find both the vidcast and podcast on our website, wh40kbookclub.com. If you like this episode, please like, subscribe, give a review, and all those good things to the vidcast on YouTube or the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. Our site also has articles about our adventures in reading other Warhammer 40k books and short stories outside of the book club books. So please stay a while and read from a crack. Good night, everybody. Good night, everyone.
This episode of the Warhammer 40k book club is hosted by Jen Bozier and me. Recording and editing of both the vidcast and podcast were done by me. The book club questions and discussion format were done by Jen, and all of our music is by Jingle Punks. The Warhammer 40k book club is a Warhammer LLC production. This is a Voxcast that even he, Cato Sicarius, would approve.